Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to have you guys here. If you're a guest with us uh, or it's been a while since you've been here, just want to welcome you. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. Of course, if you do know me, my name is still Scott, and I'm still your pastor, whether you like it or not. So just kidding. Uh, No, our lead pastor, Paul, he'll be back with us next Sunday. And so it's my privilege once again to be able to open up God's word uh, with you and for you today. And, you know, and Paul, when he first asked me to preach three times in a row, which I've never done before, I uh, was like, you're crazy. Uh, but it has been a real sweet gift to me, um, not only to preach to you, but also for God to preach to me. Uh, as we've been making our way through the summer series focused on the fruit of the Spirit, I've just been one after the other, like convicted and confronted in my sin. And that, at the same time, you know, really encouraged to pursue Christ-likeness in greater ways. And I I pray that's the same experience that you've had thus far in our summer series as well. I was thinking about a a quote by Robert Murray McShane, where he says that the greatest gift to the church is not a pastor's giftedness, but his holiness. And that's my heart, not only for myself, but for all of us as a church leadership would appreciate your prayers for us. And obviously it's also my heart for you, that you would grow in Christ-like character uh, as we're making our way through this series. And so if you are a guest with us, if you're new with us, we've been walking through um, Galatians chapter 5, these fruit of the Spirit. And so we're going to be in uh, fruit number 4 today. But before we we jump in to talk about patience, yay, uh, we are going to first just, I thought I would share with you a few lessons learned. If you've been kind of traveling or you're new with us, uh, what we've learned thus far about fruit bearing. And so I jotted these down this morning. There's actually six of them. I know it sounds crazy, but I promise I'm going to fly through it uh, real quick. So lesson number one about fruit bearing. Fruit bearing is spiritual. So these characteristics aren't just a personality type or they're not something we can do on our own strength. In fact, very oftentimes we find ourselves like, oh, this is not natural for me to be this way, Right. Um, But this gospel character, it comes about through the Spirit's work in our lives. And so spiritual fruit, it's not the way to salvation, but it is evidence of our salvation. That as the Spirit indwells us, he begins to bear this fruit in our lives. Lesson number two, fruit bearing is relational. So our tendency a lot of times when we see these fruit of the Spirit is just kind of this to have this to-do list that we're supposed to check off. And certainly there's some things to do, but I hope more than anything you've learned thus far that this is an invitation from the Lord to abide with him, to spend time with him, to relate to him, to depend on him. Jesus is the vine, he says. We are the branches and apart from him we can do nothing. But as we sink our life into his life, his spirit then begins to bear that fruit that represents the vine's work in our lives. Number two, it's all right, fruit bearing is relational. Number three, fruit bearing is gradual. So some of you guys might be like, man, am I growing at all in this area, right? Um, fruit bearing, a lot of times it's, it's invisible almost. Uh, it's mysterious how we grow. And yet when you put a, you know, we put a seed in the ground and you're wondering, is there anything going on there? And then all of a sudden, poof, a shoot pops through and you're like, oh, there it is. And in many ways, I think that's, that's kind of our experience in our growth as a Christian, we sort of look back, particularly as, a, as we go, maybe you go through a trial, and we look back and we're like, wow, I have actually grown. And so if you're like, man, am I ever going to grow in this area? Just trust the Spirit of God is working. Uh, number four, fruit bearing is personal. So uh, that means that we are all going to demonstrate these fruit of the Spirit uniquely and differently and wonderfully and individually. 
So we are called not to compete with one another or compare with one another about how we're doing, but instead to encourage one another as we're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Number five, fruit bearing is integral. So if you guys are a math person out there, you know that an integer is a whole number. It's not a fraction. And in the same way, we should approach the fruit of the Spirit really as a cluster of sort of one big fruit um, it's not, you know, kind of piecemeal. I could, I could, it's an a la carte menu. Like, I'm going to choose the fruit of joy or the fruit of patience, but not these other fruit over here. Now, God has offered us a big buffet that we are to uh, bear all of the fruit as the Spirit of God is working in our lives. I love um, what Alistair Begg says about this. He says, it is a fully orbed Christ-likeness. Go ahead and pop that quote there. There we go. It's a fully orbed Christ-likeness that God is growing in you. I love that. A fully orbed Christ-likeness. So the fruit of the Spirit, as we know, they are sort of overlapping and interdependent, and they all relate to one another. It's a display Christ um, through our lives. And last but not least, lesson number six, fruit-bearing is beautiful. When we become more like Christ— it's a beautiful display of his character and his glory, right? When you begin to look at your friend, you're like, hey, I see Christ in you. That's definitely not you. It's Christ in you. That's awesome. It's beautiful. It's wonderful, right? It's a, it's a great thing when we see Christ working in our lives. And it's not only a wonderful thing within the body of Christ, but it's also an attractive thing to the world. When, when the world sees us with joy in the midst of sorrow, or with peace in the midst of pain, or with love in the midst of hate. It is a countercultural display of Christ's character to the world, and it's attractive to the world. The very best means of evangelism is embodying the message that we proclaim, that we don't just proclaim Christ, we show Christ to the world, where our character and our convictions, they, they match up. So there's some quick, see, I told you it's going to be fast. Six lessons learned about fruit bearing. And uh, now as we're going to move on to the fruit of patience, I want us to keep, kind of keep those lessons in mind as we move forward. Uh, so the fruit of love, joy, and peace, we've already covered those. I almost kind of think those as like lofty or heavenly ideals. We sing about those a lot on Sunday morning. But patience sort of brings us back down to earth on Monday, Right? I mean, how do we deal with all that presses down in our lives uh, in a world that's just filled with troubles and trials? We need a lot of patience, don't we, right? Patience with our spouse, patience with our kids, patience with our roommate or with our neighbor, with our coworkers, with our friends. And, and even I would say sometimes patience with our God to see how he's working and what he's up to. We need lots of Patience. And so today's sermon is very simply entitled The Fruit of Patience. And we're going to talk about three sort of points related to this. Number one is um, patience defined. So, what is this fruit of patience? Number two, patience displayed. So, how is it shown? And then number three, patience developed. How is it grown? Uh, so, before we jump in, though, to, to God's word, let's go ahead and pray and ask for God to bless our time this morning. God, we come to you this morning longing to grow in this fruit of patience. And yet, if we are honest, there's so often times we're like, how do I grow? It's just so hard. When we are confronted with so many obstacles in our way and we're tempted to respond in anger and frustration rather than in patience. But God, we know that this fruit 
can be born in our lives, not through our own strength, but through the fruit of the Spirit, as the Spirit supplies the strength to us and through us. And so we pray this morning, through the work of your Spirit, um, that you would grow us in patience, that you would grow us to be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so patience defined. What is it? There's actually several words for patience in the Bible. Uh, Like many of the other fruit, this fruit is sort of multifaceted. So there's a a word for patience that just basically means patience for everyday life. Uh, Like when you're waiting in traffic or you're dealing with your kids or you're doing your taxes or whatever it is. Uh, There's also another type of patience that's required for more challenging things like waiting on God to answer our prayers for Mr. or Mrs. Wright or for uh, your wife to be pregnant or for a child to uh, come to faith in Christ or to return back to Christ or for a sickness to to be healed or for a relationship to be reconciled. There's lots of waiting in patience. That word for patience means to wait, to long for, to earnestly look for. There's also a word for patience that just basically means endurance, just to to kind of persevere through the hardships and the difficulties of life. But this morning, I want us to focus on another word for patience. And this word is actually the one that we find in Galatians chapter 5 with the fruit of the Spirit. So that Greek word is makrothumia, big word. It's a compound word of two smaller words, makros meaning long, and thumos meaning passion or temper. So it literally is translated long-tempered, but it can be translated patience or forbearance or long-suffering. And this is the patience that's required when someone has sinned against you, when someone has hurt you. And instead of responding with anger, even though you have the right and the reason and the opportunity and the ability to avenge that wrong, you don't do it. You are long-suffering. You're long-tempered. And that word long communicates that it might not just be one grievance, but it might be many grievances over a long period of time, or it's one grievance that just seems to keep lasting over a long period of time, and you're finding yourself constantly saying, God, give me patience. Help me not to be angry. We need this patience a lot, don't we? I mean, we live in such a broken, fallen, even a hostile world. And many of us have been hurt and sinned against in many grievous ways. And not only that, but we've also hurt and sinned against one another as well, right? Yet as believers, God calls us to be long-suffering, to respond with mercy rather than anger, to respond with forgiveness, not retaliation. It is hard to be long-suffering, to be long-tempered, to not get angry. Guys, I have a, a confession to make. I have an anger streak within me. Now, you might think, Scott, you seem really nice on the outside, but you don't know what's going on on the inside. Uh, I have what I would just call that long, kind of slow boil, like a volcano. And then all of a sudden, my kids, boom, make the volcano go off. See, anger for me, it has to do, and I think for all of it, it has to do with rights. I I deserve this. I expect this to happen. I have the right to be understood. I have the right to be heard. I have the right to be recognized and rewarded for my good works. I have the right for you to respond rightly to me. And when that right is taken away, 
When I feel like I deserve it, I respond with anger. And for the longest time, I don't know about for you, but my tendency with uh, my anger is just to sort of like white knuckle it, just kind of bear it. But is that really getting rid of the anger? No. I also sometimes will do behavior modifications. Maybe you guys do this. Like, I'm just going to count to 10. One, two, three. Or I'll do this. Uh, I remember this back in college. So I was like really confronted with my anger. I must have gotten angry with my roommate or something. And, uh, and so I, I come home and I, I told my brothers, I was like, I am not going to play basketball. And they're like, why are you not going to play basketball? You love playing basketball with us because I'm going to get angry. Like, no, you're not going to get angry. You're not going to just play, just play. I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to play because I know that I'm going to get angry if I play and I lose. Right? So I, uh, I, I was like, no, I'm not going to play. I'm not going to play. And they, come on, you can play. You can play. You can play. And I'm like, if you don't stop annoying me, I'm going to get angry right now. I'm going to play. So I play. First game I win. I'm like, yes. Second game I lose. And boom, I told you guys I was going to get angry. Right? We have this tendency with anger at a lot of times to sort of just do some behavior modification. And I have found that that does not help. You guys found that to be the case? There has got to be something deeper, something full, or something richer that God has to do. And it has to happen from the inside out. And I have found that for me, the only way to see my anger go away is to see the God who is not angry with me. And so what I want to do this morning is not just tell you, be more patient. I want to show you, display the patience of God for you and me. I want us to simply just kind of stop and stare and behold our God who is slow to anger, who is long-tempered, toward his people. And as we do, I pray that as we behold him, we would become more like him. That's my desire for us this morning. So let's just marvel. Let's just marvel at God this morning, okay? So we're actually going to look at several passages, not in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is slow to anger. We're going to go to the Old Testament to look at a few passages related to how patience is displayed. In other words, how is it shown? First, turn with me. Exodus chapter 34. This was the passage that just knocked my socks off. This is the passage that really helped me to see God in all of his glory and how he is so slow to anger towards his people. And I pray that it would just encourage us this morning. After God has rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, he's led the Israelites to Mount Sinai. And there he has called Moses up as a representative of the people to ratify this covenant between God and his people. He's called, the, he's called Moses to really kind of receive instructions for what this relationship can look like. It's in essence sort of a, a wedding and Moses goes down to the mount, go to the, down the bottom of the mountain. And he says, "Hey, people, will you keep your covenant?" And they say, "Absolutely, I do." Just like we do on a wedding ceremony, right? But as you well may know, Moses goes up, up on the mountain, and while he is up on the mountain, getting instructions from the Lord, what are the people doing? They have grown impatient. And in their waiting, they have turned their hearts back to Egypt. They have turned to drinking and carousing and sexual immorality and idolatry. 
That is how they respond to the pursuit of God. They, in essence, commit adultery on their wedding night. That's the setting. And listen to what God says. Now, we can imagine God's heart is upset, right? And he does discipline them in chapter 32. But when Moses comes back up on the mountain on behalf of the people, I want you to see God's character displayed. Listen Listen to who God is. Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. I want you to notice right off the bat, God does not lead out with anger. What does he lead with? He leads out with mercy and grace. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. That word for mercy can also be translated compassion or tender affection. It's particularly aroused by the sight of someone in weakness or suffering and those particularly that are dear to us and need our help. And so when God sees his people in sin and suffering, it prompts him not to anger, but towards mercy. He's ready to gush forth his mercy to his people. I want you to think about this. Do you see God in that way? When you have sinned against him, when you're weak and you're tired and you've given in to sin again, do you see actually God move towards you with compassion and mercy? Or do you see that he's going to crush you with his anger? God not only leads with mercy, it says he also leads with grace. It depicts a heartfelt response by someone to give to a person in need, but who is undeserving of that gift. See, grace is a gift. It's unmerited. It's, it's unearned. It's undeserved. And yet God lavishes his grace upon us over and over and over and over again. Gives good gifts to his people. It's like an inexhaustible spring that never runs out. That is God's grace towards his people. So he leads out with mercy and grace. And then next is our word for patience in the Old Testament. Slow to anger. In that Hebrew word, it means a long nose. So for the Hebrews, the nose is associated with anger. And just like our face reddens, so the nose reddens when a person gets angry, when you burn with anger. And you guys know what that's like, right? But friends, God's nose, his face doesn't redden quickly. He looks kindly upon his wayward children. He allows plenty of time for their repentance. And when God does finally show his anger, it is not impulsive or unjust. It's measured. It's calculated. It's as if God just takes deep, long breaths. And he continues to extend tender mercy and grace that holds his anger at bay. God is long-suffering. He suffers long with his people, even whenever we are in sin and we sin against him. Dane Ortland, in his book that many of you have read recently, Gentle and Lowly, he points out that 42 times the Bible says that God is provoked to anger, but never once does it say he is provoked to love or mercy. In other words, he is ready to gush forth 
his mercy. He doesn't need to be provoked to extend it to you and to me. All we need to do is just to come to him in our brokenness and our need and our sin, and he will gush forth that mercy towards us. But his anger, it's just the opposite. No, God doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl or scold. He, he doesn't lash out. He restrains his anger and instead shows his tenderness time and time and time again. He's slow to anger. And it's almost like kind of another characteristic that sort of like wraps around that anger. Then it says, what does it say? He's, he's, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That word for love, hesed, is used 248 times in the Old Testament over and over again. This is the word more than any other word that depicts God's relationship with his people. He is full of steadfast love. As Gary Brashears defines it, it's his consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, one-way love. It's God saying to his people, my love for you is steadfast. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not giving up on my bride. I don't come to this marriage relationship with a prenup or an opt-out. No, I am here to the end. That is perfect divine commitment for God towards his people. He keeps his love, as it says, for thousands, or it can also be translated for a thousand generations. Amazing. Not only that, but it says that he is forgiving While God is slow to anger, he is quick to forgive. And not just some kinds of sins. It uses all the Hebrew words for sin. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. So for those of you who feel like there's maybe a category of sin that's beyond God's forgiveness, God says, no, submit your opinion and your feeling to what I say about myself. There's no categories. There's no quantities of unforgivable sins for those who trust in the Lord. You might say, you don't know what I've done, Scott. My friend, God does, and he will not turn you away. If you confess your sin, he will forgive you and cleanse you. I love what D.L. Moody says. He says, the voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. That's what God is shouting on the mountaintop to his people. He's saying, I love you. I'm merciful and gracious to you. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. Just come to me. Do you see God in that way? Last but not least, it does say that he will by no means clear the guilty. Scott, is that some sort of bait and switch? Like he's leading out with his love and then boom, he's going to hit us? Yes, God does punish those who sin against him and they never repent. And there might even be some generational patterns. As it says, sometimes it extends to the third and fourth generations. But I want you to pay attention to the length of God's anger and his punishment against sin versus his love and his forgiveness. It extends to a thousand generations. In other words, God's anger is short-lived, but his love endures forever. This is God's heart towards his people. This is God's heart towards you and me. This is who God is. This is who God says that he is. So whatever thoughts you have about God, I want you to submit them to what God says about God. The same declaration is used 14 other times of God. There's another passage of scripture that I want to turn to now that see, we see that God's character is not just this way towards the Israelites. Turn with me over to Jonah. 
Jonah chapter 4. You guys know the story really well. God has commanded Jonah to go to the Ninevites. These guys are not just bad people. These are like really, really bad people. Um, They are vicious, murderous, awful people. And yet God commands Jonah. He says, Jonah, I want you to preach the gospel to these people. I want you to offer to them an opportunity to repent. And as we know, the people of Nineveh repent. And then we turn to chapter 4. Listen to what it says. I think we can identify with Jonah here, especially for those who have hurt you royally, who have really sinned against you. And these Ninevites are not just enemies against the Israelites. They're enemies against a bunch of people groups. Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, just please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? God says, I'm not like you, Jonah. I delight to respond with mercy and forgiveness. I desire to turn my enemies into friends. I desire to turn orphans into son and daughters. My heart warms when I see people sin and I want to save them. I am long-nosed. I'm quick to forgive, quick to show mercy, slow to show anger, even to awful people who have sinned awfully. God says, Jonah, I want you to do the same. Does it do well for you to be angry? By the way, where it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That can also be translated, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah that God did this. But that's not who God is. That's not his definition of evil his definition of goodness and love and grace that he would extend forgiveness to people who have sinned against him, that he is indeed slow to anger. If you're in that place right now of the Ninevites and you have never received the grace of God in your life, listen to the invitation from the apostle Peter in 2 Peter. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient. That's the same word, long-suffering toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, God's love and his mercy holds his anger at bay. He is slow to anger, quick to love, quick to forgive. That is his heart towards sinful people like you and me. One more passage in the Old Testament. As we know, God does reveal his anger to his people, Israel. After a long, long history of sin and rebellion, God finally, after many, many generations of disobedience, his anger is provoked and he sends them into exile. But um, Micah, who's a prophet right around the same time as Jonah, uh, if you flip over to the next book in the Bible, Micah, he has this prophecy and he makes this almost declarative statement about God that he invites the people to hold on to in the middle of them experiencing the, the loving discipline of, his, of their God. Listen to Micah chapter 7. 
Last three verses. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Micah says, I know your character, God. I know that your anger is not only slow, but it's also, what does it say? It's short-lived. Instead, he says, God delights to show mercy. He will again show compassion. Then he sort of flips the, flips the, um, the person and he says, you will. It's almost like, like Micah's looking directly at God himself and just looking to God and saying, I see my sin, but I know you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. You will keep your promise that you will one day send a Messiah who will take away all of our sin, who will remove it as far as the east is from the West. I'm trusting in your character, God. That's who you are. And so as we move to the New Testament, we see this Messiah, this Son of God, revealing the same character revealed in the Old Testament, don't we? God doesn't change in the New Testament. He reveals himself through his Son, God in the flesh. Or as Dane Ortland says, The Old Testament picture of God flows right into the New Testament and rolls out the red carpet and constructs a perfectly fitted throne for the king to come in and sit down upon. And that's what Jesus the king does. On every page in the Gospels, we see Jesus reaching out and embracing and defending and weeping and touching and restoring and healing and pursuing all kinds of people, particularly those who are downcast and and outcasts and broken and poor and sick. He leads with mercy and grace and love and forgiveness, not anger and judgment. Now, while Jesus was slow to anger, We do see him get angry a couple of times. One is when death has taken his friend Lazarus away, and it says that short phrase, Jesus wept, but it really means to be provoked to anger. And so there is this provoking of anger within Jesus when he sees death take his friend away. And what does he do? He steps in and he rescues that friend, he heals that friend, gives new life to that friend. The other one that we see where Jesus, of course, displays his anger is at the temple. He destroys the tables and and he gets rid of the money changers. Why does he get angry? Because those thieves have kept the poor and the common people and the Gentiles from worshiping their God. You see, God's anger wasn't the absence of love. It It was the presence of love. It came from a place of love. His love moved him to anger in order to protect and to defend and to rescue his people. In his book called Delighting the Trinity, Michael Reeves says this about God's anger and how it relates to love. 
He says, God's wrath is not something that sits awkwardly next to his love, nor is it something unrelated to his love. God is angry because he loves. Thus, in his love, he roots out sin in his people, and in his love, he promises finally to destroy all evil as light destroys darkness. His love is not mild-mannered and limp. It is livid, potent, and committed. In other words, Love not only keeps anger at bay, but love also moves God to anger to root out all sin once and for all. And that's why God the Son came. He came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that's why the cross is both beautiful and sobering at the same time, because this is where God's love and his anger meet together. As we heard in Exodus 34, God can by no means clear the guilty. He must punish sin. The sin and the rebellion that is against his love, he must punish that. But at the same time, God loves his people. He desires to show mercy and grace and love and forgiveness to thousands upon thousands. And so the father sends his son into the world. And Jesus, in his love, takes upon himself all of the guilt and the sin and the shame and the rebellion for all time for those who had put their faith in him. And in exchange, he receives the wrath of his father against that sin. The wrath that God was so slow to display through so many generations, he pours out upon his one and only son, Jesus in love becomes the wrath bearer for you and me. Listen to the words of Romans chapter three. You guys know this passage. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are deserving of wrath. What does it say? We are justified. We are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption. That's the payment that's required. Redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation. That is a wrath bearer. He absorbs the wrath upon himself and he gives up his life. It was blood that was the payment for our sin. And we, what do we do? We receive it by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his divine patience, he passed over former sins. All of those sins from Old Testament saints he passed over knowing that one day his son would pay the price. His son would absorb the wrath of God. Or as Dane Ortland puts it, the sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. Oaks, do you see God's patience displayed for you and me? Do you see his heart of grace and mercy, love and forgiveness? Do you see his patience? That he is slow to anger and quick to forgive, and he is long-suffering with his people. Jesus suffered on the cross for a very long, awful time as he experienced the wrath of his Father for you. And for me, to behold your God. I want to bring this home. So how do we become patient like our God? 
How has our patience grown? Simply this. See Christ as your Savior. Think about the worst thing that you've ever done. And then see Christ's love for you. See his forgiveness for you that he's cast your iniquities as far as the east is from the west. As we behold Christ, as 2 Corinthians 3 says, as we behold him there on the cross for you and for me, we then become more like him. We then begin to display his loving kindness to others. We begin to become long-suffering like his towards us. I want to warn you, though, don't presume upon the patience of God. If there are some of you who have not yet trusted in Jesus, don't assume that God will continue to be patient. His wrath is coming, and it either comes upon his own son in your place or it comes upon you. See Christ as your Savior. Second, see trials as your opportunity. James 1 says that we are to count it joy when we encounter various trials, difficult times, and difficult people. And we're to actually greet them not as enemies or intruders, but as friends and in our help to grow in patience. So the next time that you're sinned against, see this as an opportunity to sink your roots deeper into Christ, to, to find his strength there, to see how much he loves you as your sin is exposed, and to say, God, would you help me to now forgive my one who sinned against me? Ask for his spirit to enable you to show that same type of love that Christ has shown to you. It's so hard, isn't it? <laughs> It's hard to be patient. It's hard to extend love and grace. But when you see Christ there, right there with you, through his spirit enabling you, it comes about. Before you know it, you become more patient and more kind and more long-suffering. And then you begin to be that beautiful display of Christ's character to the world that they can then see God's love extended to them that he is quick to show mercy and grace to them rather than to show his anger or retribution. You know, I mentioned a, a quote by Corey Tinboom last week about how when she sees Christ, she is finally at rest. And I thought I would actually share with you a little bit more of her story this morning. Many of you guys are familiar with it. As many of you know, she and her family hid Jews from the Nazis for years before being discovered and thrown into a concentration camp. And there she and her family experienced awful atrocities. Uh, it's also where her father and her sister died. And all along the way, though, she had that desire to experience more of Christ's character in her life, to extend love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, to be quick to forgive rather than to be quick to be angry. And later in life, after she was finally released from the concentration camp, she had the opportunity to start speaking to churches. And one night after a church service, she saw a man in the back. And she recognized that man. It was the first man that she had ever seen from that concentration camp who was a guard. And all of a sudden, all of those memories just flooded her heart. She saw the room full of mocking men she saw the heaps of clothing of her now deceased friends. She saw her sister Betsy's painful face as she endured awful sin against her. 
And this is what she says. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard in there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, his hand held out. Will you forgive me? His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. For I had to do it. I knew that. If I can't forgive my enemies, do I really know the love and the forgiveness of Jesus who died and poured out his love and forgiveness for his enemies, including me? And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. I prayed silently, I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being bringing my tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. With all my heart, I forgive you, I cried. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love and forgiveness so intensely as I did then. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on Christ's alone. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. I want you to imagine this morning a waterfall of love. I want you to see the Father and the Son and the Spirit loving one another perfectly and completely. And out of that love, they create a world to enjoy that love. And we reject that love. We rebel against it. We turn to all sorts of sin, selfishness, idolatry. And yet God's love doesn't stop. It keeps waterfall flowing onto us through the Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Son onto us, saying, I love you. I've given my life for you. And then that waterfall of love is poured out upon us through the Spirit who it says in Romans 5, is shed abroad in our hearts as we meditate on the gospel. And then that waterfall of love turns to joy, and it turns to peace, and it turns to patience, and to kindness, and to goodness, and to faithfulness, and to gentleness, and to self-control. That is the amazing work of the Spirit in our lives. Oh, Brothers and sisters, I pray that you and I would not only see the patience of God, but we would display it to one another and to this lost and dying world that desperately needs to see the fully orbed Christ-likeness 
so that they too would not be under the wrath of God, but experience the love of God forever and ever and ever and ever. Let's pray.